0: The
1: package being it's one of my favorite cyber topics in the books, the cyber arms race and the increasing weaponization of the internet and how that plays into the world of geopolitics. Of course, that means spies, hackers, dealers, and journalists alike. That's why today we have New York Times cybersecurity reporter Nicole Perlroth to talk about her new book, This is How They Tell Me The World Ends. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber, and it's still being recorded from my apartment in New York. So, Nicole, thanks for coming on Cyber. You were on Cyber War a little while ago. That's very many moons ago.
0: <laughs> I know. So many moons ago. What I remember the most from that is that we taped it and then... The van got broken into in San Francisco, which is more normal than not. And all the um, film equipment got stolen.
1: And we had to do it again. Right. We got cased and our entire crew, all of our stuff was stolen, including like laptops, everything. It was crazy. But, um, but that was in case okay, so that probably was like some hackers, probably some hackers. That was in 2000. didn't want it to come out. <laughs> and that was 2015. And you've been reporting on cybersecurity with the New York Times since about 2011. Right.
0: That's Right. Yeah, that's been a long time,
1: 10 years, that's been a long time. And, you know, myself and some of the people at Motherboard, we've been reporting this for a really long time, too. And, you know, the idea of cyber warfare and hacking vis-a-vis geopolitics has come a long way since 2011. And I was just sort of interested as someone who just wrote a book on on the cyber arms race. How do you think since 2011? Like, how much has this is have this has changed for you, reporting on it?
0: It's been crazy. You know, it's. I know it's been 10 years, but I still feel very green because every attack that comes along, you know, even if you're really well versed in the last attack, you're just parachuting into this new situation. You know nothing about, and so every time these attacks happen, I feel like I have imposter syndrome because. You know, it's something totally new. But back in 2011, when I started, I mean, the big story back then was Anonymous.
1: We are Anonymous. We are Legion. We do not forgive. We do not forget. Expect us. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> Which seems so quaint, these days. You know, Anonymous was <laughs> like DDoSing people, anyone who was going to fall over. You know, that's what I was covering day to day. And then there was this, you know, bigger thing happening where people talked a lot about Chinese cyber espionage and intellectual property theft, which we talked about for your cyber warfare show. Um, And I think when, you know, when, when I got in here, I mean, the first big thing that happened was the times got hacked by China. So I got a front row seat to that attack. and, And that really took up the whole year. Um, And then there was this other thing where people were sort of warning me constantly about what they called a cyber Pearl Harbor, cyber 9-11. And I remember back then asking these officials like Richard Clark, okay, so, you know, you're predicting the cyber Pearl Harbor. Like, how long is that going to be? And without fail, they always said the same thing, which was 18 to 24 months. We'll see an attack like this in 18 to 24 months. (laughs) And we never saw that attack. I mean, we saw bits and pieces of it. We saw Russia, you know, turn off the power in Ukraine a couple times. Um, we saw the Iranian attacks on Saudi Aramco and Sands Casino and then the ransom wearing of all these hospitals. But we still haven't seen the big one. But it does seem like every new attack that happens, we just get a little bit closer. And right now, during the pandemic, I just feel like everything is happening all at once. And it's really hard to keep track.
1: And, you know, it's interesting because you, you, you know, we, we, we've covered at Motherboard something like SolarWinds and now, you know, SolarWinds is this big question mark and what's the damage done by these alleged Russian hackers, mm-hmm. et cetera. You know, it wasn't too long ago that it was OPM in the Office of Personnel Management. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese had completely stolen God all this personal, personal data, but you know, all of these, the one thing all of these have in common is it isn't a cyber Pearl Harbor. So it kind of begs the question, right. is that even possible? And do you think it's some overposturing from from the government that this is happening. I remember when, when Leon Panetta said that, and it was such a buzzword for so long. The collective result of these kinds
0: of attacks could be a cyber Pearl Harbor, an attack that would cause physical destruction and the loss of life. And, you know, he got really dismissed, you know, because people were saying that he was stoking FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt to scare everyone. And... You know, I look back at those warnings differently, which was I was happy someone was sounding the alarm. I don't think people understood the threat very well. I don't think they understood the repercussions of hooking up our water treatment plants and everything else to the internet and baking vulnerable software into these systems or not running their software updates. So I was glad he was sort of sounding it off. But you're right. We haven't seen that attack yet. Um, but we've come so close. I mean, solar winds—it's like they got in. No one detected it until FireEye got hacked nine months later, and we're told, "Oh, well, it's a—you know—it was a close call because it was espionage." But we also know that that Russia used that same pattern and access in Ukraine to pull off the NotPetya attack mm-hmm. for sabotage. You know, we know like a couple of years ago we got that famous DHS screenshot. Of Russia's um, hackers was basically their hands on the controls at a power plant. Um, and then, you know, we know how easy it is for that destruction to happen, either with a wiper malware or with ransomware. Um, so we keep just getting like a little bit closer. And, you know, there's there was that attack that the Iranian hackers pulled off at the wrong Bowman Dam, mm-hmm. you know, when they got into the controls at the dam that held back this little creek in New York versus the real crazy large Bowman Dam in Oregon that could have caused serious damage if they'd actually mucked around with the controls. Um, So, you know, we know that the capabilities are there. It just seems like we're all waiting for some kind of geopolitical, uh, you know, kinetic, physical war (laughs) to happen before we start seeing the cyber elements come into play. And I think that's what people call hybrid warfare and we're just not there yet. Um, But I don't think that means we need to just wait for that to happen. I feel like now with solar winds, we really have this pretty visceral threat hanging over us where the government can't even trust its own, you know, communication channels. And it'll be a long time before we uncover every last Russian backdoor so why not use this as an opportunity to basically you know, rip out the systems we don't need, do inventory on our software, understand where it's made, and really pressure software vendors to take secure coding seriously? It just seems like now is that good time.
1: But I think you're completely right. I mean, that's that's the thing is that, and you hear it, I'm sure you've heard it a lot of times. I've heard it quite a few times. The idea that you know, the Chinese hacking agencies, the Russian hacking outfits, and the NSA themselves are kind of all in each other's systems with their fingers mm-hmm. on the proverbial trigger that if anything mm-hmm. did happen, that this could happen. So I guess the question is, you know, and it's something that I think uh, you raise in the book, in that this keeps happening, I mean, in an, in a really uncertain political climate, both domestically and geopolitically, Mm -hmm. how much more likely do these sorts of attacks and these sorts of kinetic cyber attacks, how much more likely do you think from your, from your viewpoint, how much more possible is it?
0: I mean, I think it's very possible. I mean, the big thing was, you know, my book comes out today and I talk at times in the book about what the threat would be to say a water treatment facility and then fortuitously yesterday, you know, the small town in Florida, Oldsmar, Florida, population 15,000, announced that on Friday, a hacker got into the controls at the water treatment plant and upped the amount of l o y e in their systems from like 100 parts per million to 11,000 parts per million. I mean, that's very real. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened that there happened to be this guy sitting in front of his commuter- computer watching his cursor move around and five hours later saw that same cursor go into these functions and mess with the chemical controls. So that's happening. But, you know, I would not be surprised if that ends up being some, you know, domestic terrorist, basically. Mm -hmm. I know we don't, we feel uncomfortable using the word terrorism with some of these digital attacks, but, you know, we're getting closer and closer. Like when there was this ransomware attack at a Vermont hospital I covered two months ago. You know, we talk about well, thank God. You know, it's 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 not like it affected treatments. You know, doctors could still see patients. Yeah, it caused some hiccups, but no big deal. We can get through this. But what I learned covering that attack was, like, chemo patients weren't able to get their chemo treatments because their chemo protocols had com- been completely wiped out. Like, suddenly these threats are becoming that were so invisible for so long are becoming very visible, and it almost seems like every week. Something happens that ups the last one, and so we're just sort of in this escalating spiral to the bottom. <laughs> and the question is, like, what, at what point do we say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" You know, we need to we need to get ahead of this. Um, and you know, I mean, I started ten years ago. Like, I would. I looked very skeptically on those people who said 18 to 24 months, but now I'm even saying 18 to 24 months. (laughs) So, you know, I I don't know when we're going to have that big attack. I just hope we can head it off before it happens.
1: But this is the thing is like when you look back on, you know, to to return to 2011, it really was the big the big games in town that could actually pull off these big, big hacks would be, Mm -hmm. you know, the U.S., Uh, China, Israel, Russia, or UK, probably five eyes. We'd probably include all of them. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean, the capabilities of sort of the middle powers and the different types of countries that previously had no real cyber outfit to speak of have them, and they're getting better. And it's not necessarily, you know, that you need NSA powers to knock out a a dam in Nevada. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Yeah, the the skills gap... I would say has sufficiently closed, you know, anyone, if they can't, if they don't have like trained skills, hackers on staff to pull off these attacks, they can certainly buy their way into some of these capabilities, maybe not to take out a dam, you know, undo the locks at the dam specifically, but, you know, certainly to pull off a wiper attack on a major U S multi or multinational corporation, like we saw with not hitting FedEx and, Pfizer and Merck and wiping out their vaccine supply. I mean, can you imagine right now Mm -hmm. if if something like that happened? Something simple. That's a very something simple. Yeah. And I think that's what we learned is for so long, Five Eyes and particularly the United States thought that, okay, as long as we maintain our offensive advantage, you know, we can continue to outsmart the enemy. And unanimously, when I talk to officials they all say we were very caught off guard by how quickly countries like Iran and North Korea got to the place that they are now, which is, you know, in North Korea's case, stealing $81 million um, from the bank of Bangladesh and pulling off the Sony pictures attack. And in Iran's case, you know, bringing our banks to heal through the DDoS on their online banking sites and, you know, pulling off the Saudi Aramco and Sands attacks and and locking up our hospitals and cities with ransomware. So, you know, they didn't have to get as good as we were. They they just got good enough to be a very real threat. Mm-hmm. And and the other thing is that's kind of scary when you get back to sort of these geopolitical triggers is it was really frustrating for me, as I'm sure it was for you, maybe watching how cybersecurity policy broke down under the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of these deals were perfect. The Iran nuclear deal was not perfect. The agreement that Obama struck with Xi Jinping to cease intellectual property theft through cyber attacks was certainly not perfect either. But those deals really did handcuff those countries in terms of how they were using cyber to pursue their national goals And as soon as Trump ripped up the nuclear deal, we saw Iran reemerge as one of the most prolific cyber armies in the world. And in China's case, we've seen them renew their intellectual property theft in a much more skilled and stealthy way. You know, they're not just doing the old misspelled spear phishing attacks of 10 years ago when I started on this beat. They're going after the internet service providers and the telecoms and picking, you know, big game targets.
1: Yeah, it's certainly, I, I mean, I... I think this is this is what it, it it truly means is that I think under the Trump administration geopolitics and traditional alliances seemed to sort of disintegrate along with mm-hmm. the actual new agreements and what it caused was this you know this global uncertainty and in that in that these these governments acted offensively and I think they definitely acted offensively in cyber that's something people forget it's like it's not as if cyber is an extension of what's been what's going on in the real world.
0: Right. And then
1: then sometimes cyber makes things happen in the real world.
0: (laughs) Right. And, you know, this idea of asymmetrical warfare is still very much alive. I mean, the other thing people forget is just organizationally, the United States and Five Eyes are at such a disadvantage because it's not like, you know, most of our attacks these days come from cyber command from inside the Pentagon. We don't outsource these attacks to, you know, we don't pull the best security engineer at Google Aside and say, tonight you have to hack this Chinese company and siphon back their intellectual property. We just don't do that. I mean, even if we got their IP, who would we give it to or how would we benefit from it? You know, we live in a free market society. Whereas these other countries, you know, have a very lively outsourcing trade. China's, um, some of their most sophisticated IP theft hacks now come from contractors who work for the Ministry of State Security. And, you know, Russia has this sort of like Pax Mafiosa agreement with its own cyber criminals. And we've seen some of these Iranian private sector companies come out in these indictments as being behind these big hacks. And so it's really hard to establish cyber norms of behavior when, you know, it's, if, if we agreed to, say, stop pursuing some of the offensive activity we have, um, and other countries signed on to that too, they just have so much more plausible deniability by outsourcing those same attacks to contractors or cyber criminals. And so just in terms of red tape, we're at a big disadvantage too, which I think is something to call out.
1: Right. I mean, there's also just such a, a natural two-facedness of being a so-called liberal democracy and having a, an intelligence agency that goes around the world and breaks the law. So I yes. think like when you have that, you're facing that and then you have other countries that even on the surface don't admit to to play by those rules.
0: Your- yeah, and I mean it's so clear with the Solar Winds attack. You know, mm-hmm. everyone's saying, "Oh, this is," you know, I forget who it was. I think it was Senator Durbin who called it. You know, likened it to an act of war. And it's like, well, it's not an act of war. Um, it's a supply chain attack, and it was very successful. And we do it all the time. You know, I reported that we did it to Huawei um and you know we used microsoft software to get into iran systems and so how do you respond to an attack that you're doing all day every day too mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that for so long we were so much better at it and you know we still are in many in many regards because you don't see us writing about nsa hacks all the time and it's not cuz we're avoiding them it's just that they're not as easily detected so it's like you know the world has caught up to our capabilities they're just not as good at hiding them and how do you how do you respond to an attack that you've been doing for a long time? You just kind of can't
1: so you've been you so you wrote an entire book on the cyber weapons arms race, <laughs> and it's it's very detailed and it's where very very intimately reported. My question is you know the u s clearly won the conventional arms race against the Soviet Union and basically has mm-hmm. probably won every conventional arms race since. Is it winning this current cyber weapons arms race, and do you see It continued to win if it is.
0: So I think it has won. You know, I think for a long time it spearheaded this market for cyber vulnerabilities and exploits. Um, I think it has trained up some of the best cyber warriors in the world. And I think if you just look at Stuxnet, that attack was, you know, bar none, the most sophisticated attack the world, cyber attack the world has ever seen.
1: That time is here because someone sabotaged a top-secret nuclear installation in Iran with nothing more than a long string of computer code.
0: But that was 10 years ago or more, and its lead is slipping because this gap is closing between what our adversaries are capable of and what we're capable of. And the problem is that it doesn't really matter if we're the most advanced cyber actor offensively on Earth when we're so woefully behind on defense we're so frequently targeted. And in, you could argue we're we're more vulnerable than other countries because we're so wired. And we've just basically bought into this Silicon Valley promise of a frictionless society where we just want ease of access and convenience. And no one ever kind of stopped to think: should we be hooking up these systems? Mm-hmm. Like, should we be hack, you know, setting up this water treatment facility and establishing remote access for contractors who are sitting on the other side of the country? Like, Is this a good idea? And um, unfortunately, inside government, or at least inside NSA, offense just totally eclipsed defense a long time ago. We came up with this policy of active defense. We didn't actually come up with it. It was, you know, George Washington, I think, had the line that the best defense is a good offense. And we thought that that would work in cyber, but it just doesn't work. You know, every attack we've pulled off that's been detected has been a learning opportunity for our enemies No more so than Stuxnet. I mean, that attack short term was brilliant, but long term, you know, the worm got out, people dissected it. Countries, even if they didn't have the capabilities, just saw the potential for espionage and for destruction. They saw what the US got away with with code. And now there's, you know, arguably no country on Earth outside Antarctica that isn't at least looking at these possibilities. So, you know, we've opened this can of worms. And unfortunately, as we were pursuing these offensive programs, we never stopped to think about what would happen when the gap of capabilities closed.
1: And that's what I was going to say. It's important to note, I think, too, that the U.S. is probably the most hardwired country in the entire world. So, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you say inevitably that makes us the biggest target and it makes us the most, I mean, obviously makes defense the, the most difficult.
0: Definitely. And, you know, I, I struggle with, with criticizing ourselves for it because, you know, it's, we're just that virtualized. We made this decision. We wanted to be so connected. Defense is really hard. It comes down to, you know, everything from secure coding to the individual, not clicking on these random links from strange email addresses. But, You know, at the end of the book, I I looked around and I said, okay, you know, are there other comparable countries out there that are just as virtualized, digitized as us who've been able to solve for this problem? And the answer is yes, actually. You know, Scandinavia, countries like Norway and Sweden are incredibly wired. Um, You know, they have a a huge, you know, a lot of technologies come out of Scandinavia.
1: I was going to say, Nicole, as a Canadian immigrant to the United States, one thing I do know and I and I totally recognize is that whenever you mention either a Scandinavian or Canadian government model for anything, (laughs) Americans eyes roll back into their skulls faster than like. (laughs) (laughs) It's just. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And congrats on the book. I mean, that's that's an accomplishment. It is difficult to, I mean, you took like a, 10 years to do it. So, I mean, congratulations.
0: Thanks so much for having me. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: So, wait, I talked to you last week, right?
0: It's I all so. melding. to I don't know. It's what all is melding week? together. Anyway.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was like, was it Jason or you? No, I, no, I think it was. Uh, oh, no, we didn't because it was your My First Hack all right. episode. Yes, yes. Correct. So it was just all you. You were the show. I was the show, yeah. You were the show. And well done, you did. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Let's do this first story because it's, I mean, one of the ones we... Uh, Consistently, I mean, this is like, it's like NSO, Ring, they just make a lot of appearances on the show, and Ring did it again. Uh, Some new emails show that Ring's private surveillance network is sometimes being used by cops, and the LAPD, to be exact.
2: Yeah, and in this particular case, it was used uh, to try to identify people participating in uh, protests. Black Lives Matter protests uh, last summer, which is pretty creepy. Uh, you know, we knew that uh, Ring um, partnered with police departments all across the country. Uh, as Edward notes notes in his story, uh, the LIPD became the 20, 240th public safety agency agency to sign a partnership with Ring. Uh, they claim that there's over two thousand government agencies that have joined the program. So. So yeah, Ring is a good friend of the police. And uh, in this case, the EFF uh, obtained uh, a bunch of emails showing that the company received a lot of requests for footage from essentially Los Angeles neighbors.
1: Which is a bit of a wild one. You know, it's like, how many more of these are out there?
2: Yeah, and, you know, I think that it's clear that the police has access to a lot of data for any kind of investigation. You know, they in this in the case of Black Lives Matter protests, they've also used the um, traffic cameras and stuff like that. So, you know, police love to use surveillance cameras to spy on protesters. So I guess the question here is do you want to be part of this surveillance apparatus by using a ring camera? That is the question. I-
1: yeah, I the whole idea of a Ring camera has completely, I don't know, it, it it like freaks me out on many levels. It really does.
2: Yeah, I mean, as a consumer, I look at these things and I think like, is this actually giving me any security or is it just, or am I, or am I just volunteering to, you know, the Panopticon?
1: Yeah, and in, you know, in some ways, uh, security experts say like having a fake camera up can be deterrence, right? Yeah, like without ever actually having a, a a functioning camera, so it's like I don't know. Even the one when you have it, especially some of some people have these these ring cameras. It's like deep suburbs where you know this shit's not really happening. So it's like, what's the like? I don't understand.
2: There's also very why
1: have it? It's just like I feel like it's a very like an American obsession with security systems.
2: Yeah, and there's very little transparency. Uh, ring says that these requests were legal because they were very specific. Uh, The EFF claims that they were not specific at all and they were just, you know, just a fishing uh, operation to find out who was at this protest, which is very creepy.
1: Which is very creepy. And I also think like the other thing that no matter what your position is on on police, you know, when you give police techniques and powers and technologies that they have at their fingertips, they're going to they're either going to ask for it and get it or subpoena you for it because whatever makes their investigation easier they're likely to do, at least. And, and a lot of evidence suggests that's the behavior of most police yeah, forces in the past. Exactly. So you have them alone Alone, there. I mean, they're going to be something that they might tap into. Mm-hmm. All right. So this next one is, this is a, it's a spicy Lorenzo boy story. LastPass.
2: Yeah. LastPass, a uh, very popular uh, password manager. They claim to have 20 million users. So it's very famous. And I think it was one of the first ones. <laughs> to be free and very easy to use a while ago. So a lot of people use it and they made a lot of people angry today because today they announced that uh, starting in a month, people that use their free tier will not be able to use it on both computers and mobile devices, which effectively makes, you know, the free app pretty useless. You know, I think it's fair to say because you can only use it you know until now you could use it on both computers and mobile devices you could sync your passwords across their devices and now you'll have to choose between computers and you know a computer and your phone which is kind of a weird choice because these days we all use both
1: yeah i i, I just don't like i'm i'm failing to understand why they're doing this
2: yeah like there's no technical reason to do this um what they told me is that they're just adjusting their offerings based on the market which sounds a lot like we want people to pay for our app. Which you know, to a certain extent, it's fair. Uh, there are other password managers who are not free, uh, which are not free that you have to pay for it. So maybe just go and say that. But yeah, it just seems like they're making yeah. the free app <laughs> like, useless to force people to upgrade.
1: Right. Okay. Well, this, uh, and like, well, what? the result <laughs> is that a lot of
2: people are upgrading to different apps. So. I don't I know. Yeah, I mean like
1: think. I'll just yeah, I'll just go somewhere else, bruh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm seeing a lot of outrage on this one online. I'm like, you know, a lot of a lot of cybersecurity folks yeah. follow us and we follow them. And I'm seeing a lot of people being like, this is stupid. Yeah, a lot, and a and, lot of people are and, angry. And, and these these types of these types of folks are generally pretty spiteful. They're pretty quick to act. That's one thing I could say about the cyber. The cyber crew, they can throw the gauntlet down the minute they decide something in your technology isn't for them. I
2: think a lot of users in general are like that too, though. You know, like we don't like uh, our providers to change stuff without asking for our permission. And, you know, this feels like it came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't seem like there's a good reason for it. So, you know, I understand why people are mad about it because, you know, this app worked very well for them. And now there's an arbitrary change that kind of doesn't make sense.
1: Yeah, and I mean, but also, I just think that the cyber, the cyber crew, like people that working in cybersecurity, they put up with the put up this kind of shit way less. And like, the, if they're mm-hmm. sort of the canary in the coal in the coal mine on something, then probably probably can see that users aren't going to like it either. Other users,
2: yeah. A lot of experts have have come out saying that they will stop recommending LastPass from now on. So,
1: mm-hmm. even Jay Bone said that he's like, "No, I'm done with LastPass. I won't recommend it to my friends and family anymore." I was like, "Oof."
2: Yeah, I mean I I've, I've you know I as a security reporter a lot of people ask me what what do I think about password managers and stuff which one I recommend and LastPass was an easy one to recommend because it's free, it works across all devices and now that's not true anymore and I think that's that's kind of a killer, you know. It's it kills the the app. It's not going to be as easy to use for non-technical users.
1: Well, good story for Good story for the industry, good story for everyone to to understand. So thank you, Lorenzo. And now we're moving on to the appearance. Not quite my favorite topic of all time, but pretty much close to it. So we can probably cue the music.
2: Yeah, this is a great story from uh, Becky. She interviewed Amir Siraj, a student at Harvard University who... Has uh, written a lot of uh, papers about a theory called uh, panspermia, which is uh, a theory according to which um, life on Earth came from somewhere else. In this case, from Mars. So, according to him, there is a possibility that um, you know some m- microbes um, essentially moved from Mars to, the, to Earth, perhaps on a on a meteorite or an asteroid. And that's how life on Earth started, which is pretty crazy because, you know, we we always, uh, especially in sci fi, we always dream about starting life on Mars. Um, You know, I never thought about the opposite.
1: Well, to be fair, I think, I think like this, like this type of thing has like made an appearance and, you know, like Discovery Channel, History Channel shows about conspiracy theories and aliens and like ancient Egyptians. (laughs) I remember seeing one when I was a kid that was like, that weird descendants of Martian humans that came to Earth. Now, obviously, like, I think this, I mean, this is not the same thing, but one thing that is definitely true that I I didn't know up until a few years ago was that Earth and Mars share, like, an inordinate amount of space garbage with one another and rocks. Hmm. So it's like, you know, I guess, like, I mean, obviously, this, this, this dude is, like, very smart. Uh, so, I mean, there might be some real... Some real, you know, legs to this.
2: Yeah, it looks like there's there is science behind these uh, these theories. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like real science, not just you know, illustrations. And
2: yeah, it could explain why you know as a as a race we're kind of garbage. So it would make sense if we came from garbage <laughs> from Mars.
1: Well, okay, but here, here's the thing that I wanted to ask you: Like, do you remember like the mid '90s to late '90s to like early 2000s obsession of sci-fi and like? you know oh, yeah. egyptian ancient egyptians and like aliens oh yeah it's like like uh remember that like it was there were really that bo- whatever boomer screenwriting generation that was into that like they really clung on to that like that uh you know like stargate for example
2: yeah stargate independence day x files you know the 90s were really sort of the golden years of uh ufo sci-fi
1: yeah and then, but also in like egyptians like an ancient Egypt, yeah, or like the, Anubis,
2: you know, like yeah, yeah, Suddenly, it's like yeah, the pyramid, you know mean? like you know, the, the question was how did the Egyptians build the pyramids? Of course, they, yeah, exactly, they I mean, got it's, out from it's the aliens. Like... But yeah, it's it's a very it was a very popular theory, and you know, it's interesting to see that there's actually some science behind it.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see how, it's, uh, how it comes through. I mean, that'd, that'd be pretty cool. I I always love these types of stories. Becky does amazing work. She always has like the, just the most. You know, brainworm stories that kind of blow your mind a little bit, and this is definitely one of them.
2: Yeah, definitely check out Becky's work and uh, watch our interview with uh, Amir Siraj.
1: Definitely. Well, Lorenzo, uh, we're we're recording this right now. You know, only moments away from your Barcelona playing uh, Paris Saint Germain. So, good luck. I hope they lose. Bye.
2: Thank you. Bye.